midday knowledge. Hello, my name is Onopa Chirumovaiwa and I am the program coordinator for the FVZS Institute. And I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Midday Knowledge Podcast. This podcast was pre-recorded as part of our Midday Knowledge sessions. Enjoy. So thank you everybody for joining. Um, it's good weather outside in Stellenbosch, so it's going to be, I think, a good day overall. Today's session is going to be titled Inspirational Leadership in Experiential Education, and we have Dr. Young joining us. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Ramon, and thank you to all of um, my colleagues at Stellenbosch for such a warm welcome and willingness uh, to collaborate with us. Um, it's been just a wonderful experience these past few years, and we are so excited to be with you here in South Africa. Uh, we've been here now for the uh, greater part of the past week, um, and uh, as you'll be hearing from the team later today, it's been a really, really wonderful experience for them as um, they have experienced uh, the South Africa context. Um, so let me just start off by just giving you an idea of um, the things that I'm going to be talking about today um, and particularly focus on experiential learning in the context of higher education. Um, I'll be talking about how um, and, and ways in which uh, we've included student voices in the experiential learning um, co-curricular space. And then um, think about how potential lessons could be applied uh, in the South African context. Um, so let me begin by first providing a contextual understanding of higher education in the United States for those of you who might not be familiar, as well as my current institution. And then throughout um, the, the time we have together, I'll be talking a little bit about some of the programs um, that we've developed in ways that we have worked to um, really address and bring uh, this experiential learning into our higher education context. And so in terms of the, you know, in higher education in the United States, um, we have so many different types of higher education institutions. We have two-year institutions, four-year institutions, public institutions, private institutions, large, small, um, uh, institutions which are much more focused on research, uh, doctoral level work. We have geographical differences. Um, we have those that are specifically focused on um, meeting special niche groups. So we have, for example, those which are gender specific. We have those that are specific to what we call HBCUs um, or historic, uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, so each one of these institutions has their own culture and traditions um, and ways in which um, they support the student learning experience as well as the focus for each one of their disciplines. So um, please feel free at the end or put into the chat box if some of the terms that I use um, are not familiar because I know that there are different terms that are used all over the world when it comes to uh, higher education. Um, the institution that I'm currently located at is called the University of Alabama, and um, just wanted to give you a brief history of uh, the institution so you can have a contextual knowledge of, um, uh, of what I'm talking about. 
Um, so the University of Alabama is, um, it's a state flagship uh, institution. And by what we mean is that each one of the 50 states in the United States has uh, uh, institutions of higher learning that um, were formed or developed um, as part of, of a state system. And this, uh, the University of Alabama was actually formed in 1820. Um, it's grown to have 12 schools and colleges. Um, and so I'm in one of those, which is the College of Arts and Sciences. It's a very decentralized campus. Um, and so while we are governed by um, what is known as a chancellor, and that uh, chancellor governs our campus as well as of a couple of other campuses, um, we have a president at our university as well as a dean and uh, other administration. So just in an understanding of, of our institution and how it has grown evolved as the United States has also grown and evolved. Uh, I want to take you back to 1954 um, when there was a court case uh, which was um, put before the United States Supreme Court, which is the governing body in the United States, um, and it was called Brown versus the Board of Education. And um, up until that time in 1954, there was a um, separate uh, separate schools for black students and white students. And with that ruling, it was determined that separate schools was unconstitutional. Um, in 1956, so two years later, uh, a young woman by the name of Arthurin Lucy applied to the University of Alabama and she was admitted to the University of Alabama only to have her admission revoked when it discovered she was a black student. Um, so from 1956 up until 1963, it continued to be a solely white campus. In 1963, three students applied to the University of Alabama, and a federal judge um, in the United States ordered that those three students be admitted to the University of Alabama. At the time, the governor, so the governor um, in, in, in the state is kind of the, the person who is, is the chief um, administrator or education, uh, or sorry, uh, chief um, government official in the state. So the governor at the time, George Wallace, um, spoke um, at the University of Alabama, and he spoke in front of an auditorium, and it's a very famous um uh, time at the university because it became known as the stand in the schoolhouse door. Uh, and you can, um, if you want to learn more about it, there's a really interesting book um, that's been written about the stand in the schoolhouse um, door. And at the time, the governor did not want the University of Alabama to be integrated. Um, the federal government forced the integration of the university. Um, those uh, students who were black were allowed to matriculate at the university. And that hence started the integration of the University of Alabama. Um, so since that time and since the founding of the University of Alabama, um, UA has continued to grow. We have 38,000 students now, and that consists of both undergraduate and graduate students. Um, and the college that I sit in um, has 22 departments, which covers areas from biology to music, English, history, um, in our college alone, um, we have 10,000 students and 700 faculty members. We are located in an area which is considered to be rural West Alabama. And although we are a state institution, 59% of our students come from elsewhere. So they come from throughout the United States. We have a lot of international students. Um, in terms of the um, racial makeup of our student body, 75% of our students are white. 
11% are Black or African American, 5% are Hispanic or Latino, and 3% are international and 2% are Asian. So I just wanted to provide you with that contextual background um, to so that you can understand, um, you know, as I talk about experiential learning, um, what that means in the context of the University of Alabama. Now, in terms of experiential learning, um, you know, when we think about experiential learning, um, we think about um, the, looking at it from a theoretical perspective um, as thinking, acting, experience, and reflecting. And it's all in the spirit of supporting student learning, development, and change. And as I'll talk about, this experiential learning um, happens both in the curricula space as well as the co-curricular space. Because what we have found and what I have found through the work is that the experiential learning is happening both in the classroom. We do have faculty that are incorporating experiential learning into their courses. It also happens um, off campus. Um, it's a really a way to take the theory and the knowledge from the classroom and the learning that students are doing and applying it in an everyday setting. So where do students and how do students engage in experiential learning? They do it through undergraduate research. We have a multitude of community engagement. Um, some people call it service learning. The, the phrase we're tending to use now is community engagement work. Uh, professional development opportunities by doing internships, practicum. I met a student here actually in South Africa uh, just yesterday who was doing his uh, practicum um, after doing his coursework. Uh, multitude of leadership opportunities. Uh, study abroad is a really important part of the experiential learning um, process. And, and that's why we are here in South Africa is really to encourage or find opportunities for our students to explore outside of the um, particular location where they're studying. So uh, exploring the world and really developing an understanding uh, of the global context. Um, you know, in terms of um, students and seeing how they're growing and developing, it gives me such an amazing sense of joy to see the students uh, where they start from and really where they end up. Um, when we talk about experiential learning, um, we really focus on looking at and supporting students as they develop key competencies, skills, and values. Um, in the United States, um, what we use as a guiding principle are there th uh, 16 um, values, the, which the AACNU, it's the American Association for Colleges and Universities, has put forward. Um, and again, I would encourage you, if you're interested in more, there, there's a multitude of information about uh, the values and, and whole values rubric. But let me just tell you a few of those. So these are the values that um, institutions across the country have come up with that they really, um, you know, feel that students uh, develop throughout their university experience and particularly through their experiential learning opportunities. So things like creative thinking, global learning, problem solving, teamwork, written and oral communications, quantitative analysis, reading. Uh, intercultural knowledge, critical thinking, ethical reasonings. 
So, you know, you may have faculty members, um, and, prof- and when I talk about faculty members, I talk about professors um, a- as well as instructors. So we're incorporating these elements into the um, classroom experience, but also through these experiential learning opportunities, we're looking at and thinking about how can these critical skills and competencies be developed by students taking action. The other um, key um, competencies which guide a lot of our work are um, called the NACI Professional Development Competencies for Career Readiness. Um, And again, a lot of those professional development competencies mirror the AACNU competencies. They're just termed sometimes in different ways. Um, And so those are kind of the the key principles and areas that we um, look at. And the reason why um, these competencies, um, particularly for Nessie, were developed is because they did um, an analysis of employers um, and looking at what they felt were important for students to be proficient in when it came to career readiness. Um, And what the uh, major employers were saying is that, you know, they really valued um, things like critical thinking and communication and teamwork and equity and inclusion. But students didn't weren't always coming um, to them with that knowledge and experience, really those kind of some of those softer skills that that, you know, students were doing really good job with their book learning and, you know, um, the disciplinary knowledge. But really having some of these other key competencies was really important. Um, So what we have done um, in order to really develop and support the students is to talk about early, talk about um, the opportunities that they have early on um, in their first year um, at the institution. For the past few years, I've been teaching um, a first year seminar course, and this is a one credit course which students enroll in in their very first semester to really kind of get a lay of, you know, the institution, what's available to them, both in the academic as well as the personal setting, things like mental health support and health services, but also really kind of exposing them to opportunities, whether it be, you know, um, how to find the career center so that they can um, think about early on um, doing an internship, how to develop their resume, how to write an email, um, how to do an interview, um, things like that, which are really important for the students to kind of start to think about early on. Because what we found is that some students will come to us having already thought about these things, uh, but some students haven't. Um, it really, it really varies tremendously. Um, the other thing that um, you know, in terms of kind of developing this key skills um, in terms of, of student development, um, and I and I want to talk a little bit about sort of the um, written and oral communication skills is uh, discussion and dialogue um, amongst our students. You know, what we have found is that each student, and perhaps you've seen that as well at your university, comes with a different life story. Um, you know, with a campus of thirty-eight thousand students. Um, you know, there's no one student that is the same and each is really unique um, in, in their history, their story, their background, um, and really listening and encourage students to talk to uh, each other. We have found has been really useful in um, exploring student growth and development because, um, you know, that way students really learn from each other. Um, as they develop their individual skills. 
Um, we have found that, you know, having students, being peer leaders, serving as a resource for each other has also been incredibly, incredibly useful um, as a way to help students to grow. So, for example, um, there is a, a program which I'm in charge with. It's called the College of Arts and Science Student Ambassadors Program. And this is a leadership program that is uh, specifically under the dean of our college. And each year we select a group of 30 students um, who are student leaders. They interact with our donors, our leadership boards. They serve as peer mentors to their fellow students. Um, and, and, you know, the students, when they, they start off, I, I see them, um, you know, some of them really struggle with um, they've never had to work in a team or they've never really come across somebody um, who is from a different religious background as them. Um, and they really take the time to learn and grow um, throughout the year um, as they kind of carry out the various activities and work together in partnership um, with, with so many senior administrators across campus. Um, the other thing which um, I have found to be very useful um, and really supporting experiential learning is to provide support to um, our professional staff as well as to our faculty, so our, to our professors. Um, and this is where I have, um, I've seen a lot of work with experiential learning, crossing the boundaries between the um, student affairs and academic affairs. Oftentimes in the United States, these um, two divisions sit in a very siloed perspective um, and they often don't talk to each other. Um, but with the work that, that we've been doing, um, you know, I've really found that it's important to have, um, you know, to bring these two groups together because at the end of the day, um, you know, we're all working for the betterment of our student growth and development. Um, and so um, really helping um, to help uh, experiential learning both in the classroom and outside of the classroom has meant um, working with our faculty to provide them with the skills and the tools um, to be able to support the students. So, for example, um, we're now going into the second year of a cohort of um, faculty members who are um, learning about community engagement, about how to incorporate that into their courses. So, um, for example, having courses um, that they well, I, for example, I teach a course on nonprofit management. And so while, you know, students are learning the principles of nonprofit management, at the same time going out and volunteering in local nonprofit organizations so that they can apply some of the principles that they're learning about, you know, how to set up a board of director or how to manage volunteers in an actual real setting. Um, and likewise with our faculty, um, supporting our faculty as they think about how um, they can integrate undergraduates um, and undergraduate research um, into um, an off-campus setting. So, for example, um, one of the projects that we did was um, looking at our local school system and doing a study that evaluated the impact of a particular program that our local chamber of commerce was doing with the local school system. So uh, a faculty member, myself, and some undergraduate research uh, students carried out a research project with that local school system, uh, taking the learning that the students had in terms of how to do statistical analysis, how to code research um, into an actual practical setting. 
Um, I just want to take a moment to think about, you know, when we talk about, again, going back to the principles and elements of experiential learning, you know, we also talk about, um, you know, we're talking about doing, we're also thinking about how we assess student learning um, and how do we know if the students are actually learning from the experiences that they are engaged with and involved with. Um, and so, um, there's a number of ways in which I have found that this happens. Um, so I found that we have um, ways in which our faculty are bringing uh, that student learning into their um, the ways in which they grade our students. Um, so it may be that students are revising a resume um, and they're able to articulate a particular experience that they have had into the revisions of their resume. Um, it may be that um, their faculty members are getting feedback from students from the um, an intern if they're doing an internship they'll get feedback from those people that they were doing an internship with um, I found that students have done presentations so they'll present um, what they have done as part of an experience and um, talked about how they have maybe solved a problem uh, or what sort of work they've done so there's just multitudes of ways in which our faculty um, really incorporate and, and assess the student learning experience. One other ways in which we do that is um, through supporting and encouraging student reflection. So let me just take a moment to talk to you about um, a program which um, we ran this year um, called Engage Alabama, where our students um, participated in a learning experience off campus in um, two rural communities. Um, prior to the students going out to those rural communities, we had a sit down with them where we talked about the experiences that they were going to have, um, the, the culture of that community, um, what they might be exposed with as a way to kind of help them to make sure that they understood um, you know, the context of where they were going to and how they were going, the, um, you know, how to interact with, with our community members. Um, post um, the event, we had a sit down again with the students, which was really an opportunity for them to reflect on their experiences. Um, it was really an opportunity for them to sit and think about, hey, what did I do? How did I, you know, what did I learn from that day? And I just want to read to you um, um, something that our, our students said about that day. Um, they said, I really enjoyed how we met prior to the day. This wasn't something that I've seen other people do before, but it changed my mindset for the day. I made sure to seek out community members and have conversations throughout the day where I normally would have kept to myself. I also enjoyed how the event was equally community-based and student-based. I appreciated getting talked to new people. And it pushed me out of my typical conversation starter seeing as the people I was meeting didn't have a didn't have my major and were from a different place. I didn't realize how much of a pattern I had for meeting people on campus until I was in a situation where I was meeting non-college students. Um, and, you know, again, just the, the whole concept of reflection and, and setting a reflection space, I feel is so critical and vital and important, even with this um, this uh, experience that we're having right now here in South Africa um, and um, sort of working with our professional staff as well as faculty to increase their skills and knowledge about study abroad, 
um, we're sitting down and having conversations. And these can be, you know, informal discussions over a dinner or a coffee of really talking about, well, hey, what did you see today? What did you learn? How could we actually incorporate that um, into our student experience I found has been really, really helpful. Um, I just wanted to turn very quickly to talk about some of the, you know, um, gaps and the inequities that exist in higher education. And I know you, perhaps you might think about how this might apply to the context of South Africa uh, and what you what you have here. You know, um, the research will show us that there are some students who participate more than others. Um, but it, the research also shows us that those who do participate are more successful, tend to stay in school, uh, tend to complete their education. Um, so, you know, there are students, particularly students who are from traditionally marginalized commu communities um, in the United States. That means those who are from African-American communities, first generation college students, uh, Latinos, so recent immigrant communities. Um, and so really making sure to reach out and incorporate and knowing that all students um, are welcome to participate in opportunities. Uh, and that really starts in a number of ways. It starts, as I mentioned earlier, through our first year experience courses, um, making sure that the students uh, know that there are these available resources to them on campus. It also starts with our student, um, with our academic advisors, and, and that's why we have specifically brought some of them here to South Africa, because all of our students are assigned an academic advisor, and those academic advisors play a dual role in many cases because they also provide guidance for these experiential learning opportunities. And so making sure that our academic advisors have that knowledge uh, and expertise so that they can readily advise our students has been really, really important. Um, being intentional about inclusion, I've also found uh, is really, really vital. So making sure to cast a very wide net. Uh, and again, going back to this um, ambassadors program that I mentioned earlier, what I found when I took over this program was that, um, you know, we were kind of recreating ourselves. So we were only cat, we were saying to the current ambassador, well, have your friends apply to this program. Um, and, you know, there were other students who would apply as well, but we weren't really advertising it well. And so um, what we started doing is reaching out to, we have it was called an intercultural diversity center, um, reaching out to our faculty members, advertising it widely on digital screens throughout campus. And as a result, we doubled the number of applications um, uh, in the first year that we increased our net of applicants. Um, so, um, you know, just making sure that students are aware of these opportunities. Um, the other thing um, that I, I found has been really important is to make sure for our students that money is not a limiting factor. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have students who come from many different backgrounds. Um, some are more well off than others, uh, but we don't want money to be an exclusionary force. Um, and so 
Um, there are some things that students will have to pay for. There are some experiences that students, you know, if they do an away trip, um, sometimes they do have to pay for their overnight accommodations. We try to keep it as limited as possible. But we also provide these opportunities um, where there are no costs for our students. So, for example, um, these um, days of, of service that I was mentioning, um, they they were there was no charge for the students. Um, they were provided with a lunch. They were provided with transport. Um, and so, um, you know, there is there's really a mixture of opportunities so that we um, we look we always look for donors. Um, there's a big culture of fundraising for higher education institutions in the United States. So we look for donors and ways in which we can uh, get external resources to support this work um, so that all students have um, the opportunities. Um, so I just, um, I, I think that um, I wanted to give an opportunity now, um, I'm not sure if I'm on time or not, but maybe to open it up for any discussions, questions that might have arised over the course of my presentation. Dr. Young, thank you so much for a very, very um, illuminating share of what you are doing and the depth of that as well, and how not only have you built on the from the history of where Alabama, University of Alabama has come from, you've also given us an indication of how you have addressed the inequalities and how you continue to do so in a very practical way and not just looking theoretically at the, the constructs of inequalities in society, but how do we address that? I think it's enormously valuable information for us currently as university where we are. So we really thank you for um, explaining and carefully taking us through what the institution is doing and particularly how that is uh, brought through right into to faculty level. I'm just flying right over some of the highlights that you've given us just to, to pull some of the very important points, distill those points that you've spoken about. You've, you've given us an indication that not only do you um, do the work within the curricula, but also in the co-curricular and that you've purposefully as an institution looked at narrowing that divide and working both with, with the students as well as with faculty and um, putting into place bridging programs. I think that's incredibly valuable for us as an institution to look at how we can take from that and begin to see how we can apply that in terms of our work that we are doing. But that's just one of the many, many points that you've given us that stood out. But I think also where you've spoken to us about peer learning and how students take ownership of their learning journey, that's incredibly valuable, it's something we are doing at our institution, but it's something that we can definitely build on and improve on as it is an incredibly important mechanism for student success. So thank you for sharing that with, with us as well. And I think the whole uh, work that the, the amount of work you're doing in the area of preparing students for the world of work in a real world scenario based setup. I think that's incredibly important, particularly that the students don't walk away with head knowledge only, but they do have practical experience, practical skills that align to the world of work and what they're going to be required to do as professionals. So I'm going to stop there and I would like to invite from our um, participants, our audience, if there are any questions for um, Dr. Young, and I do see that we have a hand. I just want to ask you about, because why that is 
in South Africa, that's a lot of uh, students' problem, and that is the problem of money. Fundraising. Do you go actively out and fundraise, or is it people approaching you, the university, or how do you go about that for marketing purposes? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we have a, a quite robust fundraising um, effort at the university. We rely uh, on a, a variety of sources. So we have an, a, a very active alumni association. So students who have graduated from the university who um, are very dedicated and want to give back. Um, and so that is one way in which we get funds to support some of our programs. The other way, and actually this is how we are here in South Africa, is that we wrote a grant. We wrote a grant application and we got money um, to bring our uh, academic advisors here to South Africa because um, one of the things that um, this money actually came from the U.S. State Department is they wanted to increase the number of students who were studying abroad uh, and they wanted to increase the diversity of where students were studying. And when we looked at the data, we found that the students who were studying abroad were white women who were well off and they went to Europe. And we realized that we needed to expand that knowledge. So we wrote a grant application that said we want to expand the diversity of where students went um, and we want to include the diversity in terms of the students themselves and hence how we ended up here in South Africa. So, yeah, there's many different ways in which we try to get money to support this work. Dr. Young, I have one or two questions on my side and I'm wondering um, you spoke a lot about access and the role of the academic advisor, ad academic advisors in the space. Tell us a little bit about how that works, because that is unique to our institution. We do have academic advisors, but they're purely located in the academic space. They don't actually play in the co-curriculum or in the experiential learning domain. If you could just give us a, in a little a short synopsis of how does that look like in uh, at University of Alabama, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so every uh, every student when they start at the university um, pro is provided with this academic advisor. And so with the the first couple of years, those academic advisors sit in uh, a general space. They sit in what we call the dean's office and, and sit in the division of student affairs, actually. Um, and so they provide a lot of uh, advising to the students about which courses that they're going to take. They talk to them about what their major is. They talk about sort of their plans and their life direction and what goals that they have for themselves uh, and help to really direct students to various resources on campus. Then what happens um, around their um, second to third year is that the students transition to being advising in their particular disciplines. And that's when they really focus on having disciplinary advisors. Um, and so we'll have particular faculty members or instructors who will be providing that guidance and support to the students. We also have, um, and, and the College of Arts and Sciences is quite um, 
unique to this is that because we are the biggest college and most of many of our students are pre-professional. So when I talk about pre-professional, I'm talking about students who are interested in going to medical school, going to law school, going to dental school, physical therapy school. So we have specific advisors who provide students with the guidance and support for those particular areas because those are very competitive. There's uh, specific things that students need to take in terms of courses. Um, there is particularly an emphasis in the medical school field uh, on service learning because of the fact that many medical schools will look for that skill of students being able to engage um, with a wider community because of, of the, the soft skills that they need with um, dealing with patients. Um, and so those pre-professional advising uh, continues to sit with um, the um, academic advising space in addition to the faculty members that they have. Thank you so much. And I think that's in quite, quite insightful, just where they're positioned and how they straddle the learning and teaching domain, as well as how they prepare young people for the professional roles that they will be playing. Thank you so much. I'm going to pull us into the leadership component because this, and I see some typing going on, so we've got a question coming through. So while Spurgeon is um, preparing his question, Dr. Young, tell us a little bit about, um, this, this session is about leadership and experiential education and your role, particularly in developing the leadership space. Could you share a bit about that? Because from what I am gauging is that it's not just running programs and setting students up for success. It is also looking at how do we develop the, the academic space to work in that domain and how we create opportunities for faculty to begin to engage with students outside of the classroom. That is, um, it's, it's quite, it requires a certain degree of, understanding across the different spaces and also being able to draw people in and that is I think it's extraordinary what you're describing in terms of the capabilities that's required as a leader for this role. So really looking at the leadership component in a nutshell, what does it require at a leadership level to effect change in experiential education when one talks about and the word often thrown about is massification of higher ed and how do we actually pull that back when one thinks about preparing a student? It requires something from the leadership that works in that space. Thank you. You know, in terms of doing this work in experiential learning, there's a few things that I have learned um, is that, first of all, this work takes time. Um, and this change is not overnight. Um, and um, you know, taking the time to build relationships and to understand where people are coming from has been very, very important and really vital. Because when we're sort of working across both the academic as well as the student affairs space, each professional, um, as well as senior administrators, come with particular perspectives, and it's based on their experiences. Um, and you know, our faculty um, are work, work very hard. They are supposed to do research. They're supposed to publish. They're supposed to apply for grants. They're supposed to teach courses. Um, and so there are um, some faculty 
who are much more committed um, and interested in experiential learning than others are. Um, the way that I tend to work is that Anybody and everyone is welcome to come and talk about their experiences and what they would like to develop, um, but it's not required of them. But having said that, the University of Alabama is right now going through a change to our core curriculum. And with that change to the core curriculum, experiential learning will be a lot more front and center in the student experience. Our core curriculum has not been updated for about 40 years, if not longer. Um, and the university realized that um, it really needed to look at what the students were learning. And they, they realized that um, when they were looking at the data and looking at what students also wanted as part of their education, that's another critical element. So when we're talking about leadership and talking about our faculty and what we felt our faculty felt that our students needed, and we talk about external forces and when we talk about careers and what employers want of our students, we also have to think about a third element, which is what our students want and what our students value. And um, I'm, you know, I'm really interested here about the South Africa context, but it, and particularly in the United States, students want to be engaged and they want to be involved and they want these experiential learning opportunities. Um, and because we find that students are very motivated, they're very passionate um, about um getting involved with a, a range of things, whether it be off-campus opportunities as well as student groups on campus. Um, and so that is kind of been the, the, the trifecta, if you could say, of, you know, looking at what our administration feels is necessary, what our faculty feel, uh, you know, that students want um, and and looking at the careers and then looking at the student side of things. And, you know, when we talk about student engagement and student involvement, that's really where the student affairs side of things also comes into play, because student affairs is really responsible for making sure that those opportunities exist for our students and that our students are also getting the support that they need along the way to develop as student leaders. Um, and so all of our student groups uh, um, go through a training process. All of our student leaders uh, go through a training process where they learn about how to operate an organization. Every student group on campus has um, uh, has to have five lead, uh, students as a member plus a faculty advisor and those student members and leaders all go through a training process. And they have to also go through a registration process. Um, every year they are required to re-register as student organizations. They are all required to have a constitution um, which has, um, has very specific and deliberate language about inclusion as part of that constitution. Uh, they are required to sign a document which supports child protection um, and make sure that um, they don't do any work that could adversely affect um, somebody. They also sign an anti-harassment and anti-bullying policy. So that also does not happen um, as part of their student organization. So hopefully that answered your question. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We have a question from Spurgeon. He states that if we think of experiential education, 
the student voice and the student experience are at the core of the learning process. What are some key principles we as experiential educators should be aware of in including student voices and input in their experience? So um, in terms of including student voices, what I would say is providing that space for students to speak. Um, I have a colleague who ran a program and, and unfortunately it is no longer happening, but I always tell her I want her to start it again because I think it's just was the most wonderful program um, where students would come together once a month um, to have roundtable discussions about specific topics. So for example, um, there was one uh, topic that she had about body image. Um, and it, these are just tables that students come and, and actually um, staff can also come and sit at these tables. Groups of um, eight to 10 people will sit around a table and just have a conversation, have a dialogue. And um, everyone, you know, there are ground rules that are set up, which is, you know, everyone's voice should be heard and everyone's uh uh, uh, voice is valuable, um, is really, was really important. Um, I felt that that, um, program really did a good job of bringing to light the student voices, the student perspectives, um, in a very non-threatening way, um, I think was also very helpful, um, because having that space for dialogue, um, can help to break down some of those barriers that exist, um, you know, and, um, you know, a lot of times students will stick with those people that they know um, and, and being intentional about providing that space to have conversations um, and to really grow and learn, I think has been really valuable. Thank you for listening to our podcast and remember to follow us on Instagram at FEZS Institute and subscribe to the podcast for bi-weekly uploads. Also feel free to send us a message if you would like to collaborate on an episode or if you're interested in one of our short courses.